Good evening, it's good to see you tonight and uh, glad to be here and uh, as Brother George prayed in the prayer, uh, hopefully the information that we look through today will, will be a blessing to you, it will, it will help you to learn more about God's will. One of the things that I've appreciated about uh, this study of Acts is that we have got to witness what the early church did. Uh, the pattern of traditions that they held, uh, the way they conducted themselves, the things that they showed as appropriate, uh, sometimes inappropriate, that were corrected. And that helps give us a perspective of what God expects of us as his people living in the Christian age. And so tonight as we go through Acts chapter 20, we're going to primarily focus on two places, uh, and that's Troas and Miletus. And uh, there's a narrative in this about events that occurred in both of these places, and that will be the bulk of the focus of our lesson tonight. But we're also going to cover a lot of geographical ground uh, just to give us some bearings about different places they went. Uh, because Paul, in this one chapter, is going to travel several thousand miles. And that's kind of amazing to think about, that, that Luke has compacted such a large amount of time and travel in this very short chapter. So let's jump right into Acts chapter 20. And uh, we'll be going through the chapter uh, verse at a time, but bouncing around a little bit to gather some context, maybe also uh, to compare scriptures and to look at other teachings that might uh, parallel what we see in Acts chapter 20. So starting in verse 1, it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So before we dive into this chapter a little further, uh, if you weren't here for chapter 19, this uproar that's being spoke about happened at Ephesus. And Paul and his companions went into Ephesus. They began to preach the gospel. And a lot of the Ephesian people were converted to Christianity. And now, if you don't know anything about Ephesus, Ephesus was a center of idolatry. And, and primarily, that idolatry was toward the worship of a false goddess named Diana. And there was a, uh, some silversmiths there in the town. One of them is given a name, Demetrius. And they had a market for idols, and they carved these images, and they sold them, and it was a very prosperous business for them. And once they started seeing the Ephesians uh, start to become Christians, they realized that their business was threatened. And so they start trouble for Paul and for his companions. And so they essentially, they incite a riot. And that riot goes on for quite a while. Uh, Alexander tries to address them. Alexander, being a believer, tries to address them. And then they just start shouting out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two straight hours. They just shouted that over and over and over. Well, finally, a city councilman, if you will, uh, from Ephesus tries to reason with them and say, Look, what you're doing here is unlawful. And those of you, Demetrius and the silversmiths, those of you who have a problem with what these men are doing, well, you need to do that in a lawful assembly. And so he encourages them to do that, and then they disperse. Well, Paul was outside of this riot. He never went in. He wanted to go in, but the disciples there at Ephesus, they told Paul, you're not going in there. They were afraid that these people would just tear him apart. And so that's the uproar that it's talking about here. So they're in Ephesus. And the uproar stops, and Paul calls the disciples there at Ephesus to him, and he embraces them. And then he leaves from them, he goes to Macedonia. So we're going to, take, we're going to go to a map tonight, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this map, uh, again, getting our bearings, because we're going to have a lot of different places that are mentioned here in the first few verses of this chapter. 
Okay, so I know this is really small. We're going to zoom in in a minute. But I wanted to broaden this out just to give you an idea. This is Paul's third missionary journey that we've been covering. And uh, we started in Acts chapter 16. We've made it all the way, or Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 18. We end up all the way over here to Ephesus, and that's where we're going to start tonight. Now, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to expand this out is because this is Asia in biblical times. When we think Asia, we think all the way from the Middle East all the way all the way to the basically as far east as you can go before you get to Alaska. But that's not what Asia is in biblical times. It's actually what we know as Asiatic Turkey today. So when we read Asia in this chapter, it's not talking about the continent of Asia that didn't exist, but we're talking about this particular area where the seven churches in Revelation were. So as we zoom in, this is going to be the part of Paul's journey that we're going to be covering tonight. So again, in one chapter, we're going to cover all the way from Ephesus up through Pergamum, or Pergamus as it's called, to Troas and through Macedonia, eventually down to Corinth, and he's going to backtrack all the way on that same path and eventually come down a different way and end up south of Ephesus at Miletus where we'll end the chapter. Uh, and so I'm going to leave the map up there as we go through some of these verses so we can kind of talk about where they're going. So in verse 2 it says, Now when he had gone over that region, that region being Macedonia, this region right here, it says he, enc he encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. So in these first two verses, we go all the way from Ephesus all the way to Corinth. So we made a huge journey with very little detail other than he passed through the region of Macedonia and he encouraged the brethren. Because remember, Paul's already been through there and he started several churches in these areas. And he finally gets down here to Greece around the area of Achaia, which was it's also known as where Corinth is. Okay, so in verse 3 it says he stayed three months. So Paul stays three months in Corinth. And when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. Now, here's why I widen it back out. Paul is planning to go to Syria. He's going to sail to Syria. So from Corinth to Syria on this white line, that's about 900 miles. He's going to go a long ways to Syria. But for some reason, he changes his mind because of this, these Jews plotting against him. I don't know if they were waiting for him out on the coast so that he couldn't sail or whatever it was. It caused Paul to say, okay, we're not going to, go to, we're not going to sail to Syria. We're actually going to go back north and go back through Macedonia the way that we came. And so that's exactly what he does. Paul goes through Macedonia, and you've got a bunch of these names, and I'll probably butcher some of them, but don't worry about the pronunciation. Uh, okay, so Sopater of Berea, Berea being right here, and Aristarchus and Secondus of the Thessalonians, Thessalonica being right here, and then Gaius, which we'll talk about Gaius in a minute, of Derby, and I'll show you where Derby is in a moment, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. So Tychicus and Trophimus are from this area, uh, and these other three or four that are mentioned here, uh, three rather, are mentioned that are from Berea, Thessalonica, and then we're actually going to notice here in a minute that Gaius is also from Macedonia. So why would they say he's from Derby? That's kind of confusing. And, and if you go back to the chapter before, we have this, this same person mentioned here, this Gaius of Derby. Now Derby's way over here. So Derby is, you know, hundreds of miles away from Macedonia. What is he doing over here? Well, I don't think that Gaius is living in Derby. He's from Derby. And as we notice, the Bible does this. A lot of times, especially as Luke writes, he gives us where people are from, and he also tells us where they live. 
And so as we go back to chapter 19, we see mentioned here, so the whole city, this is in Ephesus, remember, was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater, and with one accord having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, which were both just mentioned, and then it says Macedonians. Well, how could, they, how could he be a Macedonian but be of Berea? So think back to some other people that we've seen in the book of Acts, like Lydia, who is said to be of where? Thyatira, Lydia of Thyatira, but where was she? In Philippi. And where did she live? In Philippi. She had a house in Philippi. That's where her, house, that's where her people live. Now, again, Thyatira is quite a ways from Macedonia. Thyatira being down here in the region around Asia. And so there's oftentimes that we see this with Paul, Saul of Tarsus. But where did Paul grow up? Well, as we get into our later chapters in Acts, we're going to learn that Paul said, I grew up in Jerusalem. But he's not called Saul of Jerusalem. He's called Saul of Tarsus. And that's the way that oftentimes we're introduced to these characters. We're told where they're from and where they live. And so Gaius is a Macedonian. Gaius also spent some time in other churches. In fact, Gaius actually had a place where he dwelled in Corinth eventually. As Paul writes the Roman letter, he says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cortus, a brother. Now, you've also seen a couple names here, Secondus and Cortus. These were common Roman names that actually represented a number. And so, uh, Cortus means four, and Secondus means, guess, two. And then you had um, one of the writers of another one of the letters had a name that was similar to that that meant three. And Quintus is another name we see. And so, they actually had these, mon these uh, numerical values to some of the names. So, that's Cortus. He was a brother. Erastus being the treasurer of the city of Corinth, and then Gaius, who apparently kept Paul and also hosted the whole church. Perhaps they met in his home. Uh, again, Gaius, and I'm, re I'm talking about Gaius because these other gentlemen that we've read about, these seven companions of Paul, other than Timothy, of course, there's not much known about them, but Gaius seems to be a prominent character in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1 and 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So Gaius was converted by Paul, which would probably explain why he traveled with Paul. Uh, and he says, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. So, so this Gaius was baptized by Paul. Okay, and then 3 John chapter 1, many believe that this Gaius is the same Gaius that John, the Apostle John, wrote his third epistle to. And again, we don't know a lot about Gaius other than who he knew and where he was from and, and where he lived. Okay, so moving on from that, we've got these seven different characters that are mentioned that are traveling with Paul and they're headed toward Asia. And so as we pick our text back up, it says these men, those seven, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. Now, you ever thought about this? Who's us? Who's us? Well, who's writing this? Luke, and I think he's Luke and Paul. And so there may have been more with them, but these men that he mentioned, I think he's mentioned Timothy in this list as being part of these men. Those men go ahead and they go to Troas. And it says, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days, joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So you got a 19-day period right here. This being the days of unleavened bread, which was a week that started from Passover and went for a week. And then five days later, they joined them in Troas after those days were over. And he said, and then we stayed in Troas for seven days. Now, we're done moving around for a little bit. And we're going to jump into the narrative of what happened at Troas. All right, see, there we go. 
Okay, so this is where we're at. We're in Troas. Now, these are familiar verses, aren't they? We've talked about these verses a whole lot. That's where it happened. This is where Eutychus falls out the window, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, too. But we want to really hone in on some things that we learn about what the early church did, what Paul did, and what Paul approved of, because he was an apostle guided by the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 20 and 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, and continued his message until midnight. So there's a couple things we want to talk about. Primarily, we're going to talk about this idea that they came together on the first day of the week to break bread. But I also want to notice this right here. While they were together, it says Paul was ready to leave Troas, and he spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, is this conversation what's going on here? And so I want to do a little bit of word study, not a lot of word study, but this particular word uh, that's translated spoke to them is used 13 times in the New Testament. Six of those times it's translated dispute. Four times it's translated reasoned or reasoning. And then two times speak and once preach. And my point is this. When you, as you go through and you see how the Bible uses this term throughout the book of Acts, what you're seeing is Paul went into the synagogue and he disputed with the Jews or he reasoned with the Jews. And we're going to see a place later where it says he was reasoning with them. And so that's the way this word is used. And this idea of message here or speech is not a conversation but one person talking. And we're actually going to see that in the text as well in just a moment, that it was just Paul that was speaking. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a back and forth. He was just talking to them. Okay, so one of the things that's come up at times is, does this verse in Acts chapter 20 indicate that this is what happened every first day of the week, that they came together to break bread? And, and I believe that it's talking about the communion here. They came together to commemorate Christ, to remember Christ, to partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine like we often do on the first day of the week. And as we see, that was also practiced in other churches. Now, now Corinth primarily is where we really get the idea that not only we see the example in Acts, but we see teaching about this that was written by Paul himself to this church about what they were doing when they came together on the first day of the week. So listen to the language he uses. Therefore, when you come together in one place, what were they doing? They all came to one place. They were assembled. And when they assembled, he said, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, don't get the idea of Paul saying, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, when you come together, you Corinthians come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. And notice, he says, for an eating, each one takes his own supper. He says, you're coming together and not taking the Lord's Supper. You're taking your own supper. And what were they doing? He said, you're taking it ahead of others, and one's hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So let's break this down a little bit. What Paul is, is observing here is these people were coming together on the first day of the week and assembling as the church. But what they were doing, instead of remembering Christ and discerning the Lord's body and examining themselves, is they were just using that as an opportunity to fill their physical selves, to fill their appetite. And I'm not going to go into too great a detail on this because Brother Justin's going to talk about the Lord's Supper, Lord willing, soon. But that's what they were doing. They were using this spiritual feast as something that was very carnal and physical. And he says, you've got homes to eat and drink in. 
this is not the appropriate place to come and feel your physical self. Now, some might think, well, that would indicate that it would be wrong for them to eat a meal together in one place. Or maybe eat a meal in the, in the building where they assembled. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I also want to notice that toward the end of the chapter, as he kind of winds down his teaching about this, again, he makes this same statement, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat. Now, this is not a meal here. Listen. Notice there's a contrast painted between when you come together to eat, wait for another, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So here he's talking about physical food. Here he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And what does he say? Don't eat all of the bread and drink all of the wine. And when other people show up, they can't even partake. He said, you're not even considering other people. You're, you're eating it up because you're being carnal. You need to wait for each other. Why? Because it's something we do together and that's why they came together into one place on the first day of the week to break bread because it's something that we do together okay verse 8 so they're in the assembly they're in an upper room and it says there's many lamps in this upper room where they were gathered together and in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. So it's not just today that we might fall asleep during church. Eutychus fell asleep during church. And Paul was speaking for a long time. He was long-winded. You think I'm long-winded? Paul was long-winded. Paul spoke all the way until midnight. I don't know what time he started, but he spoke all the way till midnight. And Eutychus is getting tired, and he's falling asleep. And he's overcome by sleep, it says. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. One thing we can say is that we might have had long-winded preachers, but nobody's died yet. Uh, that wasn't the case of Eutychus. Eutychus fell out of the window, and it killed him. However, Paul, being an apostle and having miraculous power, goes down, and he falls on him, and he embraces him, and he says, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now, I don't think he went and checked his pulse and said, Hey, don't worry, I've got a pulse. Notice it says that he was dead in verse 9, and now Paul says after he embraced him, he's alive. So we're seeing a, a miracle here. Uh, God, through his power, is raising Eutychus from the dead. Now in verse 11 it says, Now when he came up, we, when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Who is the he here? Well, it's not Eutychus. Eutychus is mentioned in 12. He had come up is talking about Paul. Paul went down. Now Paul comes up. And what did Paul do? He broke bread. He ate. He talked a long while. And then he left. The young man didn't leave. He was brought up alive. And they were very comforted by this. Now, why am I harping on verse 11? I want us to notice something about this. Paul goes where? He goes out of the upper room where they had church. He goes down, he embraces Eutychus, he comes back to the upper room where they just had church, and what does he do? He eats a meal, and he has conversation with his brethren. This is a different word we'll talk about in a minute, but this had broken bread and eaten is different than what we see earlier in verse 7. And oftentimes the scriptures uses these two terms, broken bread and eaten, to describe not necessarily the Lord's Supper, but just a common meal, and it just means to share a meal. Notice Acts 27, verse 53, or verse 33, rather, through 35. Now, this is actually when Paul is on the Adriatic Sea with 276 people, including uh, a group of Romans. And these people have not eaten for two weeks. And so here's, here's what it says. Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day, 
You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is your survival, for your survival since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Now remember, he promised nobody would be harmed. But he said, you need to eat some food because you haven't eaten and you need something for your nourishment because you're getting weak and you're getting sick. So notice verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Now, is Paul taking the Lord's Supper here? No, he's, he's eating a meal and he's encouraging them to eat because they have been fasting for two weeks. We actually see this same type of phraseology in Acts 2.46 when it says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Now notice, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Well, this is obviously not the communion here when it talks about breaking bread because he finishes that thought by saying they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart they were going from house to house and sharing a meal and oftentimes the bible uses that phrase break bread as a means of saying they were sharing a meal so paul was eating a meal and conversing with them so let's go back to acts 20 for a moment because what we saw in verse 7 was that they had come together to break bread and Paul was preaching to them. But this is different. And this word talk is a very different word. In fact, it's only used four times in the entire New Testament, this word talk. And two of those times is used one in one chapter in Luke 24 where Jesus was, was coming to meet the two disciples on the road to, to Emmaus. And it says they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing... Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. This is one or two of the four times that that word talk is used in the New Testament. And notice this isn't someone standing up talking like I'm talking, giving a speech, but this is a conversation that's being had. In fact, if you, if you look at the word, the actual word itself, the Greek word, it actually means to be together or to have something in common or communion. Sometimes it's translated in communion. In fact, if you look at the King James, it says they were in communion with each other. And, and, and they weren't taking communion on the road. It means they were communing with one another. They were talking with each other, having a conversation. The other time this word is used is in Acts 24, 26, where Paul is dealing with Felix, the nobleman. And, and you might remember that Felix told Paul, you go away for now. When I have a more convenient time, I'll call for you. And, and what he meant was, I don't want to talk anymore, and you come back later when I decide you can, and then we'll talk again. And what Felix was hoping is he could just continue to bring Paul back and forth and play with him and finally get a bribe out of Paul. Notice verse 26. Meanwhile, this is speaking of Felix. He also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. So Felix was waiting on Paul to bribe him so that Paul could be set free, not knowing that Paul had no intentions of ever escaping being imprisoned. He was ready to be imprisoned and to die for Jesus, but Felix took this as an opportunity. And so it says, therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So again, here's the way the word is used. He brought Paul in there, and they had a discussion. So that's what's happening there in Acts 20. They're eating a meal, and they sat there from after the time that Eutychus was brought up alive, and they're talking until daybreak, and then Paul leaves. Okay, so what did we learn from Troas? And we spent quite a bit on Troas. We're not going to spend as much time on Miletus. But on Troas, we learned a few things about what the early church did and what was acceptable. The disciples came together to commune on the first day of the week. 
And I think that's very obvious that that's the reason why they came together. Now, there was singing that happened when they came together. There was preaching that happened when they came together. There was contribution that happened when, when people gave of, of their means to, to help the needy saints and also to help the work of the church. But we also see that the purpose for them coming together was to commemorate the Lord on the first day of the week or as it's called in Revelation, the Lord's Day. We also see that Paul spoke in a manner of a speech or a discourse when they came together, which is similar to what we're accustomed to and also what Paul told, told the church at Corinth to do in chapter 14 when he said when somebody's going to be speaking or teaching or prophesying as the word is used, it needs to be one at a time. It needs to be one at a time. So there's no confusion, just one at a time. And we also see that they ate a meal in the same building they assembled in, indicating that Paul wasn't forbidding eating in a place of worship. So, so when Paul said, have you not homes to eat, he's not saying the only place you can eat a meal is at your home. He's contrasting home with an assembly. They ate in the same place they assembled. It wasn't about geography. He's saying, this is not fulfilling your belly. This is for remembering the Lord. This is for discerning the Lord. This is a spiritual thing that's being done, not a physical thing. And so we learn that from just this chapter and a few verses about Troas. Okay, so back on the road. They leave Troas, and it says, uh, Luke says, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. And this is Assos right here, just south of Troas. And you say, why would they sail to Assos. Well, the reason they would sail there is because they're not going to walk down there and rent a boat. They're going to take the boat they already have that they've sailed. And I don't know who owned the boat, but that was very common. Somebody owned a boat. They sailed from over here to Troas. They would sail around to Assos because their plan is to keep sailing down here to Miletus. But Paul doesn't want to get on the boat yet. And so it says they're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So that's why the red line goes through the land not instead of around, because we're following Paul, not the other people. And so Paul, he walks from Troas to Azos. And in verse 14, when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. I'll just take a wild stab at that. Okay, Mytilene is right here. It's just on the southeast side of this island. And then in verse 15, we sailed from there. That's from Mytilene. And the next day came opposite of Chios. And Chios is right here. It's an island. It's not a town. It's an island. And then it says the following day we arrived at Samos, which is an island down here, and stayed at Trogillium. And, and that's not on your map here, but Trogillium is right here on the tip of this peninsula that sticks out toward the island of Samos, just northwest of Miletus. And then the next day it says they came to Miletus. So there's, again, here's several days that have passed as they travel to Miletus. And we're going through the days for a reason. We'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, so verse 16 says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. So this is why they take this route rather than this route. They want to sail all the way down here and skip Ephesus so that they can come down to Miletus. Now, it'd just be conjecture to guess why, why he skipped Ephesus, and why. He, but he knew it would take some time if he went through because his idea is he's hurrying. He wants to get to Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And, and if you think about this, we've already had at least 19 days pass from, from the Passover until Paul gets to Troas. And so he's got a month to get from Troas to Jerusalem if he's going to make it to Pentecost because it's 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. So he's in a hurry. 
And he knows if I go through Asia, it's going to take some time. So we're just going to sail around Asia. And I'm not going to go to Ephesus. And perhaps he was worried if he went to Ephesus, they'd hold him there or keep him there. Or, or maybe it was because of the riot that had happened previously. And he was concerned about his life. Uh, but either way, he gets to Miletus. And then when he gets to Miletus, he sends for the elders that are at Ephesus. And so he wants the elders to come down from Ephesus to where they're staying at Miletus because he wants to talk to them about something that's very, very important. And that's going to take up the rest of our chapter. So we're done with the maps. And I know we moved around a lot on the map. But we're done with the maps. We're, we're going to stay here in Miletus. And Paul is going to talk with the elders at Ephesus. So when they had come to him... He said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, remember Asia's that Asiatic Turkey area, in what manner I always lived among you. So Paul in verse 18 reminds them, you know that since the day that I came here, I have lived in a certain way. And I've served the Lord with all humility and many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful but he says, but proclaimed it to you, I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and to, the, and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Paul telling these things? Is he floating his boat? Is that what he's doing here? Is Paul bragging? Is he trying to accentuate his goodness here? No, he's not. He's telling them these things for a purpose. He wants to remind them, this is the, the, the things that I've been doing. This is the kind of character I've had. This is the kind of integrity that I've had. Because something's about to change greatly for the church at Ephesus. And so he reminds them of what he's been doing and what his work's been about and how he's been willing to suffer for Christ and also how he has kept back nothing that was helpful to them. But I proclaimed it to you. And he said, and I taught you publicly and from house to house, showing this assembly format and also this private or house to house teaching that Paul did. Verse 22, he says, and see now I go bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul tells him, you know what kind of life I've lived and I want you to know that I'm about to go to Jerusalem in the Spirit is ensuring that that's where I end up. And he says, and I don't know what's going to happen when I get there. You know, he may have been expecting the worst because Paul tried to stay out of Jerusalem after he converted to Christianity because people wanted to kill him there. And so, so Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I just don't know. Although I do know this, the Holy Spirit has testified in every single city that I'm going to be bound and I'm going to suffer when I get there. But he said, none of these things move me. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because I'll tell you, most of us, our survival instinct is to avoid pain, right? Avoid pain at all costs. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I know it's going to be painful. I know it's going to be hard, and I'm going there anyway. This is not shake me. It's not going to move me. I'm going. And he says, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God he had every intention of suffering and dying for Jesus, but he was going to do it with joy, and he was going to preach the gospel. He had not lost sight of his mission, even though he knew that, I don't know what's going to happen, and it may be trouble. And he said, indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. Paul says, I'm telling you all this because I'm leaving, and you're never going to see me again. I want you to think about that. Paul started this church in Ephesus. 
He's been strengthening the brethren for some time. Made several trips through that city, encouraging and strengthening them. And now he says, this is it. You're on your own. You're not going to see me anymore. And he says, therefore I testify to this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, don't get the feeling that what Paul is saying is I've never been guilty of anybody's blood. That's not his point here. Now, his sins were forgiven by the blood of Jesus, just like everybody else's is. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, because I didn't keep anything back from you that was helpful, and because I have not shunned to declare to you everything that God wants you to know, from now on, after I leave, if somebody strays from the faith, that's not my fault. That's their fault, because I've done my job. I've done my job. I've told you everything God wants you to know, and your blood's not going to be on my hands, but I'm leaving and so with that knowledge, this is what he tells. This is why he called the elders of Ephesus down here to let them know, you can't depend on me anymore. Therefore, take heed to yourselves. To who? The elders. He told the elders, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Why? Because I'm, you're not going to see me no more. He said, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He reminds them over and over. He says, you've got to take heed to yourself. You've got to watch the flock because wolves are going to come in and wolves are going to rise up from among yourselves. And I want to really think about what he's telling the elders here because this gives us a good insight about eldership and about shepherding and about leadership, doesn't it? You know, sometimes people think the job of an elder is to stand outside the fence. As the sheep are inside the fence, the elders outside the fence. And when the wolves come, you beat them off with a stick, right? Sometimes that's elder work. <laughs> it is. Not literally beating someone with a stick. Don't get the wrong idea. But sometimes that's elder work is to make sure nothing crosses the borders of safety. But notice what else he says. Men will rise from your own selves. Sometimes the wolves don't come from outside the fence. They come from inside the fence. And so what does that tell us? The shepherd's got to be, they can't just be outside the fence. They've got to be in the fence. They've got to be with the sheep and know the sheep. You know why? Because sometimes the sheep are the wolves. That's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? But Paul says, I've warned you about this. I've warned you about this night and day. I've warned you for three years with tears. He said, it grieves me. I cry over this. And you got to watch. And you got to remember. Because I'm not going to be here anymore. You see why it was so important that he called these elders from Ephesus down to Miletus? He's so concerned about the church. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you, may, you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He said, I want to commend you to the word of God and to God. And he said, that's going to strengthen you. It's going to establish you. And he said, and I want you to also know, I haven't covered anyone's silver or their clothing. And he said, I provided for myself with these hands. That's what he said. And he said, I, and by doing that, I've showed you an example that you should also labor for those. Because he didn't just provide for his own necessity. Paul said, I've labored with my hands to provide for those who traveled with me. I made sure they were okay. Now, question. 
Does that mean then that it would be wrong to support someone who was doing the work that Paul was doing? Is, is Paul saying it's wrong to do that? Because sometimes that's been concluded. But if we notice other teachings, and we're going to go through these quickly, 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul said the same thing to Thessalonica that he said here to Ephesus when he said, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And so he says, We worked with our own hands. We made sure that we took care of our physical needs. But notice what else Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, or is it only Barnabas or I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes toward his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? So what's he talking about here? He's saying, is it just me and Barnabas that have to work and labor? He says, don't we have the right to not work if that's what we choose to do? Because we're the ones that are going to war, because we're planting the vineyard, because we're tending the flock. Now, he's using those as an analogy. He's saying that, that's just practical sense. Someone who goes to war, who pays for that? Well, obviously, whoever commissioned him to go to war. Well, well, what about somebody that plants a vineyard? Does he not get to eat his own fruit after he does that work? And what Paul's saying is we have the right to take of your physical things if we choose to do that. And he says if we've sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right. But endured all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, we have every right as ministers of the gospel of Christ to reap of your material things because we've sown spiritual. But he said, but we didn't take advantage of that, right? We didn't do it. We didn't do that. But then he goes on to say this. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings at the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So is it wrong for someone who is working and laboring in the gospel to receive money? No, and that's not Paul's point. He's just saying, I chose not to do that because, number one, I could, and number two, because I wanted to set an example for you about working hard and providing for yourselves. Notice also in 1 Timothy 5, it's actually even scriptural to support an elder monetarily. Look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. So, you know, I don't think we do that here at this congregation, but it would be scriptural if we wanted to, if an elder was laboring in the word and teaching, is what the word doctrine means there, to support them monetarily, and some churches do that, and that's perfectly fine. Paul makes a case for that when he writes to young Timothy. So back to Acts chapter 20, as we finish up the chapter, he gives them this admonition, he warns them about things to come, and it says when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that he would, they would not see his face, or they would see his face rather no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. What a beautiful scene here of the love of Christ. As Paul, born a Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, goes into Asia and converts a bunch of Greeks. And they love one another so much that there's this very emotional scene when they're worried about never seeing Paul again. That they all knelt down together and prayed and cried and embraced one another before they saw their friend leave and never come back. The unity that God wanted in his body, we see it right here between Paul and the Ephesians. 
beautiful that people from different backgrounds and different cultures with different traditions and different practices could all be joined together and share the same love and purpose in Christ Jesus because of the salvation that he offers. It's a wonderful thing. And if you're not a member of that body tonight, we want to encourage you to become one. Uh, if you are a member of that body and you've been having trouble in your life, just as Paul went to the churches and strengthened them, that's what God has put us in a body together for, is because sometimes we need that. We need to be strengthened. We need to be encouraged. We need to be comforted. And if you need either one tonight, we offer the invitation at this time, come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing.